Hey everybody, it's Pastor Chad. Today is Sunday, March 28th, 2021. Welcome to the Way Ministry or the Way Radio live online. Uh, if you're watching and you can't hear, please just uh, make a comment. I do see the comments from the Facebook page for the church for the way R122 on Facebook. The other comments I don't see until after the broadcast is finished. Let's pray and we will get right into today's message. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity uh, to gather and to uh, meet at a distance each week. And Lord, as we uh, enter into the week in which we celebrate your resurrection, I ask, Lord, that you just uh, multiply your grace in each of our lives, that you would uh, open our eyes and our hearts and our spirits more to your truth, uh, that we would be blessed with the ability to step outside the darkness of this world and to step further into your light and to be blessed uh, with a greater understanding of who you are, the person and the work of you. And Lord, I just ask that you would bless this message today, that you would touch the hearts and the minds and the spirits of each person that hears it, and that you would do a mighty work through it in Jesus' name. Amen. So the title of the message today is, <clears throat> excuse me, I find no guilt in him. And it's based on John chapter 19, verses 1 through 15. And one thing I'd like to say as we go into this message, and then we, as, as we hear next week's message, which will be uh, Easter Sunday, or what I like to call Resurrection Sunday, um, uh, here in America, and I believe everywhere around the world celebrates it on the same day, I'm not sure, um, is I think it's very clear that we need to reject the absurdity of Easter and what it's come to represent in a worldly context and embrace the truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which is what we should be celebrating. And the reason I say this is because there is so much worldliness that surrounds Christ, the celebration of Christ's birth at Christmas and the celebration of his resurrection at uh, Easter. And I, I, I think because of what's happening in the world and because of so much chaos and confusion that we've seen in the, in last, in the last year or so, one of the ways that we can really have an effect on pushing back against those things is to begin to more outwardly and mindfully reject the staining that the world has put on uh, so much of Christianity. And what really brought this to, to my mind was, was last Christmas, I remember reading an article about uh, the factories in China that use basically slave labor to create Christmas ornaments and Christmas decorations that Americans have in their homes. And it just uh, really, it really bothered me because it was just these photos of these people living in just horrific conditions, working basically nonstop with very little rest. And this one photo was of a man just covered with, with red um, dye that was probably toxic. And he was just making these little decorations of like a red stocking that people would hang on their Christmas tree. And I thought, man, how did we get so messed up to where something as beautiful as a celebration of Christ's birth, because it's been so affected by the world, can cause so much suffering just in the name of greed. And I know Easter is the same thing. Um, you know, in America, many people like to purchase Cadbury eggs and give them to each other or to give them to their kids um, on Easter morning in their Easter baskets. And I saw an ad where Cadbury eggs is basically celebrating homosexuality. So that's a company that we should not be purchasing anything from as Christians. So really think about that as we go into today's message and, and, and next week's message, how we can begin to strive to get back to true biblical Christianity and to start striving to make an effort to understand what resurrection, the celebration of Christ's resurrection really is and the celebration of his birth really is, and to strip away these, like I call them, the stainings of the world that have creeped into so much of this. And I think you'll understand that more as I go in today, as I go into the message today especially. So let's read John 19, 
verses 1 through 15, and then we'll go into it like I do each week, section by section. It says, Then Pilate, Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you, that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, Will you not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You, have no, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king, of, a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement and in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He had said to the Jews, Behold your king. They cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. And I want to begin this with a quote. Uh, sorry, let me put this here. From Charles Spurgeon. That I think is very pertinent to what we're reading about today. Spurgeon said, everything said or done in connection with the Savior during the day of his crucifixion was full of meaning, far fuller of meaning than the speakers or actors were aware. And as anywhere in scripture, and especially as we study Christ's life, his crucifixion, his resurrection, everything Christ did, everything he said, every place he went, every act he carried out, everything he did had profound meaning that we can spend a lifetime delving into more deeply and deeply. And that's the point that Spurgeon is making in this statement that he made regarding the crucifixion of Christ. Those that were there, those that participated in it, those that observed it had no idea the depth of what was happening. And one way I like to explain this is, if you look at all of history from the beginning of time through the time that we're living in now until the end of time, everything centers around this one event. All of creation, all of history rotates around the cross of Jesus Christ. It is the meaning and the reason and the purpose for everything in existence in all of creation. So this is the most important thing that you can study in your life is the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And this part, especially uh, his crucifixion and resurrection. A little bit of contextual review. If we look back at John 18, uh, whoops, did I miss a verse here? Yeah, let me just read it. John 18, 37 through 40. It says, therefore, Pilate said to him, so you are a king. And this is this is before what I just read. This is when he was first brought to Pilate. Therefore, Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say correctly that I am a king. For this I have been born and for this I have come into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? That is one of my favorite questions in scripture. And it was uttered by Pilate, a man that we consider to be extremely evil. But that question, what is truth? Pilate said to him, what is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again to the Jews and said to them, I find no guilt in him. 
but you have a custom that I release someone for you at the Passover. Do you wish then that I release for you the king of the Jews? So they cried out again, saying, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. The reason I love that question, what is truth, is because during this time, which is so much similar to the times in which we live, Rome and the Roman Empire was just inundated with idol worship, occultism, um, uh, just uh, false gods. There was so much uh, philosophy, humanistic philosophy. There were so many different viewpoints and so many different opinions and so many different religions and philosophies and types of worship that I think many, like Pilate, just said, what is truth? Nobody's ever going to know what truth is because everybody just has a different opinion. It's just chaos and confusion. And isn't that a, a, a picture of where we are at today in the world and in modern Christianity, where you have just this constant influx of every opinion, every humanistic uh, philosophy, um, occultism is on the rise, paganism is on the rise. So it's very applicable, that question of what is truth then as it is now. And as we see, the Jews were in such a sense of hatred against Christ that even when Pilate, and you'll see as we read through this today, that Pilate again and again was trying to get out of putting any sentence on Christ, of of, of placing any sentence of judgment against him because he knew he was an innocent man. He says over and over again, I find no guilt in him. And he was trying to find a way out of doing anything against Christ. But the Jews just kept pushing him and pushing him and pushing him to the point where they actually wanted Christ to stay in Pilate's custody and have a known robber released to them. So it's just uh, the, the, the level of human depravity and evil that we see here is beyond understanding. But again, it's a reflection of the human heart and the depravity that people are born into. So let's look at verses 9, 1, 19, 1 to 19, 3. It says, Pilate then took Jesus and scourged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and put a purple robe on him. And they began to come up to him and say, Hail, King of the Jews, and to give him slaps in the face. Folks, if you hear noise in the background, I'm sorry. Um, sounds like somebody's mowing their lawn close by. I'm going to read this again. Pilate then took Jesus and scourged him, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and put a purple robe on him. And they began to come up to him and say, Hail, King of the Jews, and to give him slaps in the face. Now, the first thing I want to talk about here, and I want to show you guys, is we often come across things in Scripture, and we read about them, and we may not take the time to consider what they are or to research what they represent or what they really were. And I think anybody that's been a Christian for any amount of time has read that Pilate took Jesus and scourged him. Now, I want you to bear in mind that Pilate has said, I find no guilt in him. So he's taking an innocent man and he's scourging him simply, it seems, to pacify the Jews, which is just uh, crazy. But what I want to share here is what he means by scourging. I'm going to fill the screen here with these images and explain them, and then I'll come back so you understand what I'm talking about. If you look at the upper uh, right hand, I believe, as you're looking at the screen, you'll see a replica of what they believe a, a Roman scourge may have looked like. And as you'll see, it's got these metal or clay or ceramic pieces with hooks in the end. And then the picture right under that are actual artifacts that they found from Roman times that are the pieces of what might have been bone or, again, ceramic or some kind of material, maybe stone, that they've carved and they've attached to the, the, the threads on the scourge that help inflict a greater level of punishment on the victim. And then if you look at the upper left there, what I put up there is a couple photos from the Shroud of Turin. And this is sort of a controversial area. Many people don't believe the Shroud is for real. They think it's a fraud. It's something that I've 
researched off and on through the years. And I tend to believe that, that the, the Shroud of Turin is the burial cloth of Christ. Can I prove that? No. But if you study it, there are things about it that are so mysterious and are so profound on how the image of the man that was wrapped in the cloth is is transferred to the cloth that it, that it just leans towards the supernatural. So I tend to believe that the shroud is the actual burial cloth of Christ. But if you look on this photo, what someone has done is they have drawn circles of areas that show where the man in the shroud had been whipped with a scourge. And you'll see there's, um, you've got these, they've circled, they've done white marks and black marks. And I think it just has to do with the direction that the infliction of the wounds came in. And it's in the front, you'll see here, the thighs, the shins, the chest, the stomach area, even the hands and the arms maybe. And then the back is just been pummeled with a scourge. So imagine the damage that is done to the human body with a weapon like this. And again, the reason I show you this is because Pilate had this done to Christ right after he had stated that I find no guilt in this man. So he's saying this man is innocent. He's done. I can find that he's done nothing wrong, but I'm going to scourge him. So this isn't a slap on the wrist. This is a horrific punishment beyond what most people could even survive. That Christ was suffering at this point in his suffering. He hasn't even gone to the cross yet. So just think about that. So Jesus was innocent. There was not a trace of guilt that could be found in him. In his ministry, he healed, he comforted, he guided, he raised the dead, he loved. And yet, in spite of his perfect innocence, he was punished, he suffered, and he was killed. And when I say that he was innocent, like I've talked about before, we often think of sin as something that's acted out. But much of our sin that is almost all of our sin that is acted out begins within us. The heart is where our sin starts. And from our heart, our, the sin infects our thoughts. And then it pours out in our actions. Christ never even had that seed of sinful desire or sinful thought that would have been acted out in action. So his thoughts weren't even sinful. He was perfectly sinless, but he suffered in such a horrific way. Isaiah 55.3, find this one here, you guys, says, but he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chast chastening of for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. And this is one of those paradoxes of the Christian faith. We look at the horror that Christ suffered through the scourging and, this, and, the, and the pain that he went through, the blood that was poured out. And while it's horrific to us, it's also something we should meditate on constantly as Christians because that is what saved us. It says, and by his scourging, we are healed. We are healed of the sin that we are suffering under that we are trapped in, that we are born into. So everything that deserved to fall on us fell on him. Very important to remember and to consider. Consider what he endured for sinners. He, he prophesied that these things would happen during his ministry. If you look at Luke 18, 31 through 33, it says, Then he took the twelve aside, and said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and all things which are written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished. For he will be handed over to the Gentiles, and will be mocked and mistreated and spit upon. And after they have scourged him, they will kill him, and the third day he will rise again. So he told his disciples these things were going to take place. He knew exactly what he was walking into. That's why it said he set his face toward Jerusalem. Let's look at John 19, verses 4 and 5. Pilate came out again and said to them, Behold, I am bringing him out to you so that you may know that I find no guilt in him. Jesus then came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold, the man. So he's been scourged. 
His back is a bloody mess. He's been nearly destroyed physically from this punishment. Then they put this robe on him to mock him, mock him, pound a crown of thorns into his head. And now Pilate brings him out because he thinks maybe this will placate the Jews. Maybe they'll back off when they see him in such a state. The crown of thorns was to mock his claim of being a king. But what do the thorns represent? The thorns represent our sin. The thorns represent the sin that he was bearing for those that he came to save. Now, I want you to notice that thorns must have come about after the fall. Because remember, when, when God created the heavens and the earth, when he created the original earth, before Adam and Eve transgressed and sinned, the earth was perfect. It was not even anything like we see it now. But when they transgressed God's law, when they went against his command and they rebelled against him, sin came in. And part of sin coming into the world was that the world then went into a state of decay or entropy. See, at that time, before that, you didn't have things like rust. You didn't have disease. Those are all the result of sin. But the other thing you've got to realize is that thorns were a are a result of the fall of mankind and its effect on nature. If you look at Genesis 3, 17 through 18, it says, Then to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat from it, cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you'll eat the plants of the field. So the thorns that were placed in Christ's head were as, because of our sin, but the actual thorns themselves are in the world because of sin. A fascinating thing to study and to consider. And the purple robe was to mock his claim to royalty. They said, if you're a king, fine, we're going to bloody you, tear up your back, and then we're going to put this purple robe on you since you think you're a king. So they were just mocking him in every way that they thought they could. But again, what does Pilate say? I find no guilt in him. He repeats it again. I find no guilt in him. But what I want you to do here, and this is what I was talking about before, when it comes to Resurrection Sunday, instead of looking at it as Easter, which comes from pagan worship, I want you to look to Christ here. I want you to look at his love, to look at the humility with which he bore such ridicule and torture. Look to Christ here and see what he paid in our place for our, for our salvation and what he bore for our sins. This is what we should be focusing on, not Easter eggs and not candy and not this worldly garbage that we've allowed to corrupt such a holy and amazing and wonderful remembrance. You see, you're starting to see why I said that at the beginning. Look at Isaiah 50, verse 6. I gave my back to those who strike me and my cheeks to those who pluck out the beard. I did not cover my face from humiliation and spitting. Again, a prophecy of what the Messiah was going to suffer centuries before Christ was born. And then Pilate says, behold the man. What he's referring to is Jesus, the last Adam. He didn't know he is referring to it, but he was. Jesus, the last Adam, who is all that we should be. See, we were made to be perfect and holy and to celebrate and worship and glorify God, but we've totally transgressed that in our sins and trespasses. But Christ, because he became man, represents all of those that he came to save. Jesus, the perfect sacrifice, because God became man in order to save man. So again, Pilate is saying these things that he has no understanding of, that he has no meaning, the profound effect that they are having, or the profound meaning that they carry. But when he says over and over again, I find no guilt in him, he's reiterating that point that an innocent man who is actually God, is suffering for the sins of those that he came to save. And then when he says, behold the man, he is affirming the fact that God has become man in the flesh in order to suffer the sin, the penalty for sin of man in the flesh 
so that he could save those that he came to save and those that he loves. So Jesus, the last Adam, is all that we should strive to be. We should strive to emulate his humility, his compassion, his love, and his sacrifice. Look at Romans 5, 18 through 19. I keep missing my verses here. Where it went. Sorry, guys. There we go. So then as through one transgression, there resulted condemnation to all men, meaning the transgression of Adam, even so through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through the one man's disobedience, meaning Adam, the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one Christ, the many will be made righteous. Behold the man. Now, Pilate brought Jesus out in a horrific, degrading, and humiliating condition, supposing the people would never again look on him with respect. See, Jesus was a threat both to the Romans and he was also a threat to the Jewish leadership. Why? Because he, he, he was overthrowing the worldly. He was overthrowing what the world is, which the Roman Empire represented. And he was overthrowing the false religion, the false belief system that Judaism had become at that time. So Pilate brings Jesus out in a horrific, degrading, and humiliating condition, supposing the people would never again look on him with respect. And how wrong Pilate was. He had, again, he had no idea what he was a part of, could not comprehend it. It was, it was so far above him that he had no understanding of it. Look at Hebrews 2.10. For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. So God's plan, again, that hinge of history was being carried out. Pilate was right there at the center of it and had no idea what he was a part of. But the words he was saying were so amazing because they were affirming Christ's reason for what was happening. Just consider that. Just that that's the sovereignty of God in such a profound way that's being shown to us there. Let's look at John 19 verses 6 through 9. So when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out saying crucify, crucify. So he's been punished, he's in a horrific condition but they're not even close to being satisfied. So the chief priests and the officers saw him. They cried out saying, crucify, crucify. And Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and crucify him for I find no guilt in him. He says it again. The Jews answered him, we have a law. And by that law, he ought to die because he made himself out to be the son of God. Therefore, when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. Very interesting. And he entered into the praetorium again and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. Now, the first point I want to make here is, may our passion and our zeal and our fervency in living for Christ surpass the hatred that we see here in the phrase, crucify him, crucify him. And why is it since the beginning of the church there has been so much zeal and fervency from those who hate Christ and those that want to do away with his belief and faith in him, and so much apathy and complacency on the part of professing Christians. The modern church would not be in the state it's in if we strove to emulate the fervency and zeal of those that wanted to destroy Christ. Think about that. We need to kick it up many, many notches. Pilate wants to be done with Jesus here. And once again, he repeats the phrase, I find no guilt in him. And the Jews then go to another level and they accuse the Lord of blasphemy. So now they're bringing in Jewish law to try to help convince. They're trying another tactic to try to talk uh, Pilate into turning over Jesus to be crucified. And they refer to Leviticus 24, 16, the Old Testament law that says, Moreover, the one who blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall certainly stone him. The alien as well as the native, when he blasphemes the name, shall be put to death. So they're accusing him of blasphemy, trying to use Jewish law 
because Pilate keeps pushing back and not wanting to move forward with what they want to do, which is the crucifixion and the death of Christ. But it's interesting where Pilate, where it says, therefore, when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. Why was Pilate afraid? And why was he now even more afraid of making Jesus himself out to be the son of God? Because at first he thought he just had a criminal who was leading an insurrection and doing something that had upset the Jews. Now he sees that this guy is calling himself the son of God. And now he's, I think Pilate is starting to get a sense of the spiritual battle that he is in the midst of. And this is what's fascinating about Passion Week. And when you study the, the trial and the crucifixion and the resurrection of Christ is the spiritual intensity that was happening at that time. We know that it says the sun went dark when Christ was on the cross. When he gave up the spirit, there was an earthquake and the rock split and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. So the spiritual battle must have been palatable. And I think it was intensifying at this point and all through this in such a way that Pilate was becoming more and more fearful because he knew there was something going on far beyond his understanding. And he, didn't, he, he had no ability to grasp it. So Pilate may have felt that he could pacify the Jews regarding a king who is someone who is claiming to be their king, but how does he reconcile them to the one who claims to be the son of God? But also consider, if you read about this in Matthew uh, in Matthew 27, 19, it says that while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent him a message saying, have nothing to do with that righteous man, for last night I suffered greatly in a dream because of him. So I believe all through this time, it may have been a few weeks as it was nearing the, as Christ's ministry was nearing the cross. And the crucifixion was drawing near. I believe the spiritual intensity around Jerusalem and around Calvary at that time just kept getting more and more vibrant because we were seeing the ultimate battle between good and evil carried out between God and the forces of Satan. You see? This, like I said, with literally the hinge of history was turning at that time and Calvary was the center of it. To where people, I, I don't believe his wife was the only one that probably had dreams. I think many were probably very, very troubled. I think anxiety was probably prevalent. People were trying to understand something is very, very wrong. And then on the day when he's on the cross and it goes dark for hours, and then when he gives up the ghost and he says it is finished and he dies on the cross and there's a massive earthquake and the rucks crack, the, the curtain in the temple is torn to two and, and some of the dead rose from the grave, it says. Think of that. Spiritual warfare just exhibited probably at the most intense level that's ever been until the final day when Christ returns. Very interesting thing to study. So Pilate said to him, take him yourselves and crucify him for I find no guilt in him. But notice here when he asks Jesus where he's from, says Jesus gives him no answer. He doesn't respond. Why? Jesus could have said, I'm from heaven. I am God. But he doesn't say anything. Why is that? It's because he's in submission to his father's will, and he'll do nothing or say anything to hinder his sufferings. Think of that. He could have called a stop to what he was suffering at any time. He could have said, enough is enough. I'm not carrying through with this. And he could have just let us continue in our condemnation and eternal destruction away from God. But he loved us so much that he let this continue. He submitted to his father's will and he let God's plan be carried out. And he moved forward with it because he is God but he never stopped it. So he's in submission to his father's will and he'll do nothing or say anything to hinder his sufferings because he is paying the penalty for the sins of those that he came to save. And every last part of that penalty had to be met. You see? So he, he made sure that it was carried out as God's plan intended. Look at Isaiah 53, six through seven. 
All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers. So he did not open his mouth. Again, hundreds of years before Christ appeared on the scene in the flesh and Isaiah prophesied how he would act while he was being led to slaughter. Let's look at verses 10 and 11. So Pilate said to him, you do not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and I have authority to crucify you? So now we see that with probably that very typical attitude of those in power, uh, for of those Romans that were in power. And Jesus answered, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. For this reason, he who delivered me to you has the greater sin. So if he was scared before, this really had to start concerning Pilate. Because now Christ basically makes it very clear to him that Christ is the one in control. Christ is the one who has the power. Christ is the one who is orchestrating what is taking place, not Pilate. So this is where Pilate must have just really... I believe he must have just been going through mental turmoil, trying to figure out what was happening. How could a man who suffered so much and facing crucifixion, who's, he's, he's, he's having so much hatred poured out on him and abuse, say such a thing? But what we have to understand is Pilate was an instrument in God's hand. Jesus could have stopped all that was happening with a word. Look at Acts 2.23. And uh, 4, 27 through 28, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. The predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. Acts 4, 27 through 28, for truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. Everything was in the control of Christ by the sovereignty of God, everything. But notice where he says, for this reason, he who delivered to me, delivered me to you has the greater sin. Herod is doing what God is controlling him to do and what his purpose was through God's plan. But when he says the greater sin is referring to the Jews who had witnessed his miracles, who had listened to his ministry for the last three years and are still calling for his crucifixion because they refuse to turn away from their sin and iniquity and repent and follow Christ. He's referring to Caiaphas in John 11, 49 through 50. But one of them, Caiaphas, was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man die for the people and that the whole nation not perish. He was saying, if we kill this one, everything will go back to normal. Caiaphas had the greater sin. He condemned Christ because he feared the people and for political reasons. Judas he was with Christ as a disciple, and his betrayal is what set this evil plan in motion. He's the one that began what, what was taking place. It shows you the severity of betraying Christ, the severity of denying Christ, the severity of following the world while you claim to be a Christian, but do nothing to serve Christ or to honor him. You see? Think about that. John 19, 12 through 15. As a result of this, Pilate made efforts to release him. Again, he's trying to, he just wants out. But the Jews cried out, saying, If you release this man, now they're now they're now you see another tactic from the Jews. If you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar's. Everyone who makes himself out to be a king opposes Caesar. So they've appealed with their law that I showed through the book of Leviticus saying he's blasphemed. So according to our law, he needs to die. Pilate's still trying to get out of it. So now they take another tact and they're going to the Roman law 
because they figured there's no way that Pilate is going to argue with us if we can try to make him believe that Christ has gone against Roman law. So as a result of this, Pilate made efforts to release him, but the Jews cried out saying, if you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. Everyone who makes himself out to be a king opposes Caesar. Therefore, when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the pavement, but in Hebrew, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation for the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, behold your king. So they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. Look at the desperation of both Pilate and the Jews. It's fascinating. The Jews hated Caesar. They hated the power of the Romans. They felt totally oppressed under them. They believed their Messiah would come and free them from Roman rule and oppression. But they are they hate Christ so much more that they appeal to Pilate through Roman law and claim that basically claiming that now Caesar is their king. They were using the only angle they had left that they thought would work in carrying out their desire for the murder of Jesus. They threat they threatened Pilate with being considered a traitor. Just fascinating. Now notice that it's the day of preparation for the Passover. The Jews should have been purging out the leaven in getting ready for the Passover. They should have, be, they should have at this time begun the ceremonial purging of the leaven from their homes in preparing for the Passover. So they're claiming that they're trying to adhere very strictly to Jewish law that's what they're claiming in bringing Jesus to the sham of a trial. But they rejected the temple service on this day, instead carrying out the most evil of plans. So what they claim to be so ultimately important, and they're trying to act like what they're doing is, is such a holy and pious and, and right thing, yet they're not even honoring and they're not even carrying out what they should be doing under Jewish law to prepare for the Passover. So you so you see the hypocrisy here that is just exhibited through them so blatantly. And we see that from them all through the book of John, if you read through the book of John. So now Pilate cries out almost seemingly in desperation. He says, shall I crucify your king? And he's seeking a way out of his predicament again. So the Jews claim allegiance to Caesar, who they hated, rather than to God, because they knew it would please Pilate and help bring about their desire for Jesus' crucifixion. Matthew Henry says in his commentary on this section of Scripture, he says, What a righteous thing it was with God to bring upon them the ruin by the Romans, which followed not long after. Jesus prophesied that Jerusalem would be destroyed. Not one stone would be left upon another. And 70 years after this event, the Romans destroyed Jerusalem. That's why Henry said, what a righteous thing it was with God to bring upon them that ruin by the Romans, which followed not long after. Now we all know what happens after this, and that's what we'll get into next week. But what we see here is, like I said, the absolute relentless tenacity of the Jews to have Christ crucified regardless of guilt that can be proven in any way. And obviously knowing and seeing that he's an innocent man. Even Pilate's wife said that righteous man, something in her dream made clear to her that he was a righteous man that was going to die in the most evil way. Just consider that as, as you go into this week. But really, I think the thing we need to remember along with considering what Christ did for us is obviously the whole gospel message. Meditate on John 3.16 this week. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. 
And then you have to ask yourself of all the times throughout the year, this is that time when you should be asking yourself, do you know Jesus Christ? Do you truly have a relationship with him? And that question is so important in this time in which we live. When 90% of the professing Christian church around the world, mostly, has no idea of who Christ really is. You see? I live in an area where all over the place there are these temples that say the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. That Jesus Christ never existed. Those people are following a sham. The Christ that they think they're following is not the Christ that we're learning about today. How sad is that? And so I was just meeting with some people earlier this week. We had an online meeting, uh, some pastors in different parts of Africa. And that's what they were saying is their biggest problem is the prevalence of false teachings, pastors all over the place claiming to be Christian pastors with no idea of who Christ is, no idea of the Christian gospel. So ask yourself, do I truly know who Christ is? And if, you, if you're worried that you don't, it's very easy to solve that problem. Go into his word, read the book of John, pray over it, study it. And the Holy Spirit will open your heart to the truth. And if I can help any way, just email me. Chad at the way, the letter R122.org. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that we're able to study your word, that we're able to remember back and to, to consider what took place so many years ago and to understand what an amazing thing that turning point of history is. When the crucifixion took place on Calvary and you died for our sins and then you rose three days later for our salvation, Lord, I just ask that you would bless each person that hears this message, that we would use the coming week uh, wisely to learn more of you, to grow closer to you, and to have a greater understanding of you and your gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. Like I mentioned last week, you guys, uh, we have a sponsor now. I'll put this on the screen so you can see a little more clearly. Um this is a company that my brother and I started about a year ago, and the reason we did so is we wanted to be able to create a way for people that are trapped in poverty in developing nations um, to be able to generate income, to give them a better way of life. So what we are doing right now, we're mainly focused in Africa, and we are importing, um, we, we are designing and then working with native artisans that are that are creating our, our products for us and we're importing them and we're selling them at elephantwalk.net and the proceeds help support the ministry and they obviously help support the people that we are working with in these countries to help uh, create these products. Um, it's been a great blessing so far. Um, it, and, and I will tell you, the products are amazing. Um, if you're interested in anything along the lines of really nice, high quality leather bags, handbags, purses, um, men's wallets. We have just an amazing collection of items and also uh, uh, dishes, uh, wooden dishes, uh, serving sets, condiment trays. Um, you know, please take a few minutes and just check out elephantwalk.net. And I think you'll be really impressed uh, with what we have on there. And uh, it's a project that I'm really excited about because um, one thing you learn if you're in ministry in the modern time is if you're preaching the gospel and you are trying to win souls for Christ, you get very little support. Uh, if you're in a false teaching, there's so much money in it, you can't spend it. It's just the way it is. And I hear that from so many pastors. So my brother and I started really praying about it and talking about it. And we thought, you know what? Uh, let's create something. The Lord led us into this and uh, something that will uh, help support the ministry and enable us to do something um, much larger than we were able to do before. So uh, we need all the help we can get. And I'd appreciate anybody checking out the website. If you do go to the website and you decide to make a purchase, all you have to do is type in the way, all lowercase on checkout, and you get a 10% discount. Uh, so just check out elephantwalk.net, type in the way uh, upon checkout in the, in the coupon field or the discount field, and you get a 10% discount. Uh, if you have any questions about that, you know, just shoot me an email at chat at the way, the letter R122 
www.ghostsandmysteries.org. If you'd like to support the ministry, uh, give me one second here. I'll bring this back directly. You can just go to our website at the way the letter R122.org and go to the donut, the donut, go to the donate page. Um, you can subscribe to the podcast at christianpodcastcommunity.org. And like I've said before, what I do is usually each, each Friday or Saturday, we publish the, the sermon as a podcast episode from the previous Sunday. So you can subscribe to the podcast. Uh, if you do, please be sure and give us five stars. That helps very much on places like iTunes and um, I forget which ones we're on. Um, I obviously just publish them and I probably should spend more time promoting and paying attention to all the different platforms that they're on. But if you have an opportunity to rate the podcast, please do. But to find it, just go to subscribe to the podcast at christianpodcastcommunity.org, search for The Way Radio in the search field, and there's a bunch of other great podcasts on there. Um, so that, And it's all just really good, solid Christian teaching podcasts. You can find us on YouTube at The Way Ministry Church. And again, we need all the help we can get, so you can donate at the way, the letter R122.org. Uh, things are starting to happen with the Bible school in Nairobi, Kenya, and I'll have more information on that in the coming in the next week or so. Um, we're really starting to get things figured out and to put things in place. Um, so hopefully that will come together soon as well. But we already are moving forward on that. We're sending materials so they can already start um, offering teachings. Uh, but that's a project that's really uh, important to me right now and important to the ministry. So I, I ask you to pray and support that if you can. All right. Thank you again for watching. We will be back here next week. Same time, same place. God bless you guys.